following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. Good morning. Today's reading is taken from John 13 verses 34 to 35. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let me add my welcome to that of Claire to you to this service today. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, our Lord and our God. Amen. The first task of any preacher on 1 Corinthians 13, writes Richard Hayes, is to rescue the text from the quagmire of romantic sentimentality in in which popular piety has embedded it, he writes. The common use of this text has linked it in the minds of many with flowers and kisses and frilly wedding dresses. In fact, he continues, this passage is an impassioned vision of the more excellent way in which members of the Christian church should treat one another. And with that introduction, let me wish you all 
a happy Valentine's Day. Friends, I have preached at least half a dozen sermons on 1 Corinthians 13, and every single one of them has happened at a wedding. And it really is no surprise that couples continue to choose this as the text for their service of holy matrimony. As a hymn about the enduring nature of love and the qualities of love, there are few better examples in the whole canon and history of literature than 1 Corinthians 13. For those of you who are married in church, this may have been your wedding text. And Gemma and I chose it as one of the readings at our wedding. So today, as we celebrate all that is good and joyous about married love, let us together give thanks for that gift of love between two people romantically drawn together before admitting that in fact, Richard Hayes makes a good point. Our readings this morning from both John's Gospel and 1 Corinthians are indeed about love. But rather than romance, what we hear of this morning in our readings is a love much more powerful, enduring and resonant than that spoken of in any card from Hallmark or Moonpig. Our reading from the Gospel of John comes as part of Jesus' farewell discourse with his disciples. By this, people will know that you are my disciples, says Jesus, that you love one another. People will know that you are my followers, not by whether you wear a dog collar or if you lead a spiritual support group or even if you can prophesy or speak in tongues or have one of a plethora of spiritual gifts. Each of those things may be signifiers of your relationship with Jesus, but the authenticator of that relationship is how you love your sister and brother in Christ. Paul's letter to the Corinthian church is to a Christian community uh, who are in disunity and disarray. Disagreement is rife and is undoing the work which Paul did amongst them in building up the church when he was with them. In his absence, factions have developed, morals are in disrepair, and worship has degenerated. And our chapter this morning comes from a pastoral letter that is not so much the text for a wedding, but rather advice for marriage counselling. And here, in the midst of this pastoral letter, we find Paul's description of a more excellent way of being together. A description of love as being in the sea in which all spiritual gifts can swim, the air by which all relationships can breathe, and without which our gifting, flourishing and relationships are left either suffocating for want of air or flapping in distress for want of sea. Without love, the chimes and harmony of mutual flourishing 
are replaced by the clanging gong of communal strife. Now, as well as being Valentine's Day, today the church marks Racial Justice Sunday. But why have Racial Justice Sunday at all, you may ask? There are those who say that we shouldn't do so. Critics of marking such a day ask perhaps whether it's another example of the Church of England being in hock to the woke liberal agenda of society. Is this not yet another example, they ask, of a misguided church with mixed up priorities, talking about lefty issues that stand apart from the creeds that we have as followers of Christ, when instead we should be going about our core business of celebrating the sacraments and proclaiming the gospel. And indeed, these very comments and concerns can be found in recent weeks in certain parts, dark parts of Anglican Twitter, or in publications such as The Spectator magazine, where that clanging gong of strife is being heard. This is suggested by our Christian brothers and sisters that the current failings of the church can be uh, attributed, at least in part, to the focus that we give through the marking of days such as today. But my friends, such criticisms fail and fall short because they overlook the commandment of Christ in our gospel reading this morning and the lived out reality of love that we hear in how we treat each other from our reading from 1 Corinthians. Racial Justice Sunday is an annual reminder that not everyone is treated the same, that the sin of racism is a virus that remains alive in the body of Christ, and that as a body we all lose out when one part suffers. Today is a reminder that the most effective vaccination, 100% effective against racism in all of its sinful forms and variants, is love. As well as being a reminder, Racial Justice Sunday is also an inspiration, a call to challenge the behaviours, the structures, the powers and principalities that seek to uphold, embed or further the sin of racism. It's an invitation to challenge the voices who say it doesn't matter, it's not important, we have other things to be getting on with. Because as our readings remind us, there is in fact nothing more important in our priorities or in our actions than our love for God and for one another. The opening three verses of 1 Corinthians 13 are a reminder that love is the very ground of our meaning. Even the most spiritual and meritorious activities become meaningless without love. Indeed, in verse 2, Paul goes as far to say that even if he were to have faith that could move mountains, without love, he is nothing. These verses speak to us today about our purposes. In asking what actions we prioritise, 
What is the value in what we do or act upon if it is done without love as its core motivation? then it's simply a waste of time. In the following three verses, in verses four to seven, Paul provides a description of the attributes of love, which require the formation of character, learned patterns of behavior that must be cultivated over time in the context of a community that models and supports such behavior. Paul describes the credentials of love with two positive affirmations, swiftly followed by eight negative descriptors and finishing with five further affirmations. That checklist of 15 characteristics in verses four to seven provides a health check for our relationships with one another, be they in a marriage, in a friendship or with one another in church. And whilst the church should be a school for the cultivation of these habits and practices, a place where character formation or discipleship is as much a part of the role of the church as teaching and praying, there are times, my friends, when the church gets it wrong or very wrong indeed. In the past few days, there has been a report published into the activities of a globally respected Christian leader and evangelist who has now died, but who during his life abused his power and his position. He sexually abused women, exploited others and lied to those who supported him, to the organisation that bore his name to his friends and his family. This is not the only time the church has got it wrong. Individuals, organisations, dioceses, they all get things wrong when they prioritise other things over love. Themselves, their reputation, their pride. In such circumstances, the call of love requires that its handmaiden justice be brought to bear. In these circumstances, the power of love must protect always the victim and not the victimizer. Churches have an obligation to be counted four square on seeing that love is always hand in hand with justice. And then we come to the final verses of the chapter, verses 8 to 13, a reminder of the enduring nature of love that we are called to show to one another. Not only should that love be our primary action, but also the reminder that it's a lifelong commitment. These verses are a reminder too that our actions in love are but a dim mirror of God's perfect love for us and that our imperfect actions, claims to knowledge and wisdom, are a lifelong journey, which will ultimately find their end and answers before the face of God. As many of you know, last summer I accepted an invitation to co-chair the Archbishop's Task Force on Anti-Racism. Since our first virtual meeting in October, 
we have considered more than 20 reports published by the Church of England on issues of racial justice. The first, Faith in the City, published in 1985. We've also looked at over 160 recommendations made in all of those reports, which were debated, voted for and accepted by the Church. And yet, despite all those recommendations, very few were acted upon. The issues identified more than 30 years ago still remain. The stain of racism has remained stubbornly present in our institutional life together and resurfaces time and again. In the face of such stubborn persistence, it's tempting, my friends, to simply give up, to pack it in. And I have felt, particularly during recent days, whether anything can change, whether this injustice is set so deep in our church that no numbers of reports, task forces, commissions or timetables for change will make any difference at all. But I am comforted in the knowledge that I can only see partially what is taking place, that the desires of women and men throughout the church for change are seen and known by God, and that through his power, in his spirit, and in the name of his Son, in the words of that wonderful song of the civil rights era, a change, a change is gonna come. Having started uh, this sermon by quoting Richard Hayes on frilly flowers and wedding dresses, I want to end with reference to a marriage ceremony that many of us will remember. Cast your mind back to May 2018, to a lovely Saturday spring day when the sun was shining. The doors to our church in the centre of Durham were thrown wide open and people from various parts of the city, the county, and even from different countries gathered in our church to watch the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. The wedding sermon that day was preached by Bishop Michael Curry, the presiding bishop of the church in the United States in America. And the text that he had was in fact not 1 Corinthians 13, but rather the Song of Solomon which contains those beautiful words. For love is as strong as death, passion as fierce as the, as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a raging flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. In his address, Bishop Michael Curry said, there's power in love. Don't underestimate it. Don't even over sentimentalize it. There's power, power in love. Before going on uh, to quote a sermon by Martin Luther King, who said, we must discover again the power of love, the redemptive power of love. And when we do that, we will make of this old world a new world for love is the only way. In an interview given after the service on how he came to write the sermon, 
Uh, Bishop Curry said, there's an enormous power in love to heal and to help. There's an enormous power, both motivational and transformational. Everything that matters to God, everything the Bible is trying to tell us, it comes down to two things, the love of God and the love of neighbour. And surely, my friends, that is the message for us this morning. Today, still under lockdown, still in a pandemic, on this Racial Justice Sunday and Valentine's Day, that message remains true. Everything that matters to God, everything the Bible is trying to tell us, comes down to the love of God and the love of neighbour. Or to put it another way, and now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.